Well, here we are again, and um, in these last weeks I've been going through the book of James and finding quite a lot that um, I didn't fully understand myself, and I began to <laughs> study it and to speak about it. There's much more than one realizes in James. Um, now I'm coming on to the last chapter. This will close this series. And um, while the beginning of it is a little bit difficult, when I actually look in this old Bible of mine that I used for many years, this is the Bible where the pages were falling out, and I've got these pages st stuck it back in. <laughs> That's how much out they were coming. I've actually had to change on to a different Bible because of it, because uh, a number of the pages are falling out, which is not ideal when I'm preaching. Anyway, so James chapter 5. Now, James starts off here in quite a strong way. I mean, this... I find that actually the Epistle of James is quite different in its style to those from Paul or even from the other disciples. Um, he's quite strict. I mean, in uh, the previous chapter, chapter 4, we're dealing, why are there wars and fightings amongst you? Um, you lust and you seek to kill. <laughs> I mean, that's terrible. but. He does end, and I didn't actually mention this in the last message, the last verse of chapter 4 is very significantly strong, because in it he says, uh, therefore to him that knows to do good and fails to do it, to him that's sin. So what James is pointing out is what I learned from my father, that there are sins of commission, which sins that we commit, and there are sins of omission when we fail to do what we ought to do when we know that we should do it. So it's on that note that we ended the fourth chapter of James. And by the way, I'm using the authorized version. Strange enough, the previous one, it was the revised. Now I'm back into the authorized, partly, I think, because I'm so familiar with this in the authorized, I can't deal with it in any other. Anyway, he's rebuking rich men and saying, weep and howl for your miseries that will come on you. You see, the challenge here is not to the Christian. The, here the challenge is to those who are living outside of Christ in the world and who, whose main desire is wealth and power or either. And the tragedy is that so often people are seeking to simply accumulate, but uh, as somebody has well said, 
uh, naked you came into the world and naked you go out. You didn't bring any of your money or clothes when you came. You were dependent on other people. And when you die, you will again be dependent on other people. And so he's really emphasizing in verse 2, your riches are corrupted. Uh, they're worthless. And your fine clothes um, are moth-eaten. Um, this is not in the literal sense of how people might see you, because there's no question people do see big cars or big yachts or beautiful clothes. There's no question. And certainly wealthy people are marked by these things. But as regards the spiritual side, they're worthless. They're absolutely worthless. Uh, there's no... And when you realize, you see, you've got to understand where James talking here. You've got to understand very clearly that James is making a comparison between the brief 70 years that we live on average here. That's not counting me. I know I'm an exception. But <laughs> whether it's 70 years or, like me, 90 or 100 years, that is, a, a, as we would say in England, a drop in a bucket, a drop in an ocean compared to the length of eternity. And the reason he's talking like this is so simply that you can accumulate wealth, you can become the richest person in the country, the richest person in the world. I'm thinking of some, I don't want to name them. <laughs> but those riches only last for such a brief time. And it's gone. When you're dead, it's gone. It's gone. And when you compare that with eternity, with Christ, none of that wealth counts for anything in God's kingdom. It goes on in verse 3. You've got to understand what he's trying to say. He's, in effect, he's comparing the short life that we live down here, and the Bible does refer to it as short, and the long period that we, we will be in the kingdom of God in eternity. I mean, the Lord is going to set up a kingdom on this earth for a thousand years, and that's only the beginning because we, we live for eternity. We have an eternal life and we're not going to die. We should be building up riches and wealth in the kingdom. Do you understand? Here the exhortation is not to look at the wealth here, but to build in the kingdom. And um, Jesus teaches us in the parables, the parables that uh, what you're doing actually down here is you're building... A, your home in heaven with the materials that you send up, what you're doing. That's why he says in verse 3, gold and silver <laughs> have just rusted away, uh, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and 
actually, when he says, shall eat your flesh as it were fire, the very fact that when you're in the kingdom of God and you realize that for all your wealth down here, you've nothing, the Bible even says that some get into heaven and are virtually be naked, not literally, but virtually naked with nothing. And so in effect, all these treasures that you've uh, heaped up down here will actually be a witness against you. And it'll be like a, a fire. Well, I think he's actually uh, obliquely referring to the very fires of hell because you can be the richest man on earth, but without Christ, you spend an eternity in hell in fire. He goes on, and this is coming a little bit closer to home because he says the hire of the laborers who've worked for you and which you have kept back from them by fraud cries out to God. And it says, uh, they cry out to the Lord and these cries are entered into the ears of the Lord. You see, one has to realize that when we die, every one of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, good or bad. And there is a judgment. There is a day of judgment. And therefore, all these things that you fail to do, these things where you have done wrong and sinned, is going to bear witness against you on the day of judgment. That's why. He's referring in verse 4 and in verse 5, you've lived in pleasure on the earth, you've nourished your hearts, and there's a day when you, you think that uh, there is nothing more, there's only just the days down here. But he goes on in verse 6, you've condemned and killed the just, and God doesn't actually stop you. No, God doesn't stop you. But then in verse 7, he comes on to the spiritual side. He says, be patient, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. There's a great exhortation in the scripture to the waiting and the patience. Because, as he says here, the farmer waits for the seed, the crops, to mature. And he has to be patient. He cannot speed up the process. Now, that's what, what he's meaning to say. Look, you put the seed in the ground, you plant a, an apple tree or a fig tree or whatever. You cannot, there's nothing that you can do that will really speed that process. You have to wait patiently for the harvest. And he says, you've got to have long patience until you receive the early and the latter rain. And let me say that there is a spiritual lesson here, that spiritually we're sowing seed. They, when we preach the gospel, when we witness, we're sowing the seed of the word. The scripture refers to it, the seed of the word. And that seed needs the rain, which is the Holy Spirit. 
and we're talking, and this is a subject in itself that I will deal with elsewhere, but I do believe that when he's speaking about the first and the last rain, this is Joel chapter 2, uh, where he promises the outpouring of the Holy Spirit uh, as the first and the last rain, and the last rain is greater than the first, and here it's simply that even in the physical you have to wait for the harvest, but spiritually, when we're working for God, we don't see all the results down here. Only God knows um, what happens to that young person you point to Christ. You didn't know that they would go on to be an evangelist. Uh, even with my own father, my, my father who taught me so much and prayed over me so much, never lived long enough because he was in the First World War, married late, and I was about, he was about 40-odd when I was born. And so he never lived to see how much God has blessed me. And it's going to be wonderful uh, when the Lord comes back to, for my father to see the fruit of the seed that he sowed. So he's saying, be patient, verse 8, and strengthen and establish your heart. Why? Because even 2,000 years ago, James was saying, the coming of the Lord is getting near. You know, right from the beginning with the early church, they believed in the early return of Christ uh, so much so that when Jesus was talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit, the disciples said to him, when the Holy Spirit is come, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, will you set up your kingdom on earth then? And he warned them that no man knows the day nor the hour. Then in verse 9, it's coming on to something else. Don't hold a grudge against one another because if you do in your heart, you're hindering them. And yes, you will be condemned because God is the judge. We're told not to judge one another because God is the judge. And then in verse 10, he's moving on to something else. And we're coming on to something really interesting here. Take my brethren, the prophets, who spoke in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. Hmm. You see, the prophets in the Old Testament, they suffered enormously for what they were doing. They weren't preaching the same kind of a gospel that we have because Jesus had not come and died, but they were still preaching about the kingdom and God's righteousness. And it says in verse 11, Behold, we count them happy who faithfully Endure, you know, it's enduring to the end, keeping faithful to the end. And just as the prophets had to, so you and I must keep faithful to the very end. And he says, you've heard of the patience of Job and you've seen the end. And what we find is this, although Job lost his family who died in the persecution, the end of Job was so much greater than the beginning, and what Job received after the persecution 
had said that his daughters were the fairest in the land, the most beautiful. So that what God gave him was far more beautiful than what he had at the beginning. And, you know, Job said something in all his persecution and suffering. He said something amazing because he said, and I actually put these words on my wife's tomb. He said, in my flesh shall I see God. So even in the Old Testament, in the days of the prophets, before Christ had come and preached the message of the kingdom, Job believed in resurrection. Come on. He believed in the resurrection of the dead and believed that he would be in the presence of the Lord and said, literally, not in a spirit, not as a ghost, not in some unearthly thing in heaven. And a lot of people get the idea that heaven is, is unearthly. <laughs> it is, but not in the physical sense. In heaven, we will have physical bodies. How do I know? The evidence is when Jesus rose from the dead and came back, he was seen and recognized and sent to Thomas, who didn't believe it was the Lord, put out your hand and feel the hole in my side and see the hole in my hands. So the body of Jesus after the resurrection was the same mortal, no, immortal, but the same physical body. Do you understand? So that's why he's saying, Job was saying, in my flesh shall I see God. Then in verse 12, brethren, don't swear, either by anything in heaven or earth. Don't you, don't so live that you have to confirm what you say by some reference to heaven or earth, he says, be very straightforward in your speech and says, let your yes be yes and your no, no. In other words, be straightforward. Do what you say. Do what you say. I, I, I referred earlier to, to the fact that we have a, an expression in England that is, don't just talk the talk. You've got to walk the walk. You've got to live the way you speak. And if we live the way we speak, our lives will be the evidence and the witness. Otherwise, you just won't. You'll come into condemnation. Then we come on to the exciting part, and this is one reason why this page is so worn. Verse 13, is any among you afflicted, let him pray. Any merry, let him sing psalms. This is an exhortation to be comforted. If you are afflicted, look, I've been afflicted. You know I, I, I've had cancer that would have killed me twice, once in my throat and the other time in my lung. I was in prison and they threatened to... Uh, to, uh, that I would die in there. And I, I also, if you know my life, there were four actual literal attempts to assassinate me. Yeah, I'm serious, um, with guns. And on one occasion, they did kill one of the people in there. Oh, that's why he's saying, if you're afflicted, pray. If, uh, if you're married, let them sing songs. 
And then in verse 14, the comfort. Any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. There's absolutely no question. Healing is part of the ministry in the church. And I find that, sadly, this is one of the most neglected parts. There are so many churches who do not actually believe in these miracles, in the power of prayer to heal the sick, because it says, if the sick people call for the elders of the church, anoint him with oil and pray, and that prayer will see a miracle. Come on, we need to bring the miraculous back into the church. It says the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And not only that, if he's committed sin, they'll be forgiven him. I can remember on, oh, under communism, when I was in the Ukraine, one time they smuggled me over the border into, I think it was Moldova. I needed a separate visa for Moldova, and I didn't have one. They hid me in the back of a car and took me over, and we had a glorious open-air meeting preaching the gospel. But one thing which I'll never forget is that amongst the people, there was a young woman in her 20s, and she was blind, and she was crying and crying. And she came to me for prayer, and despite the fact I was praying, she was still crying. And I had to look at her and say, look, if you believe the scripture, she was a Christian, she was a member of the church. And I said, if you believe the scripture, you know you're going to be healed. Why are you crying? I said, you should be laughing in faith. She took my advice. She stopped crying. I prayed again, and God gloriously healed her and opened her eyes. And I found out that the particular church that she was in had condemned her because they said that she was blind because of her sin. The Bible doesn't say that. It actually says, if you're a sinner and God heals you, your sin is forgiven. And that girl went away rejoicing. Yes, she was totally healed. Verse 16, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you can be healed. So that healing is a, is a total ministry, but I believe that that particular healing is not necessarily physical healing. I think it's mental, mental healing. It's because... If you can get rid of the burden of the faults, the problems, the mistakes in your life, and you pray together, instead of condemning, you know, so many churches, they condemn and they criticize their thought to throw people out because of their mistakes. No. Pray together. And that person, even with mental breakdown and with physical, psychological problems, will be restored. We need to restore the backslider, restore the ones that have failed, not throw them out. And the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails. And you know, I love preaching on that because in the original Greek, it's not just effectual, fervent. It's the powerful prayer. It's the actual word used in the Greek is dunamos. 
and we translate that as dynamite or dynamo. And so the dynamic prayer of a righteous man will avail. But we need that dynamic prayer. And it says in verse 17, Elijah was a man subject to passions as we are. He prayed earnestly and it stopped raining. And then after three and a half years, he prayed again and the rain came back. That was a powerful miracle that convinced the king of God's power. And in verse 19, if any of you err from the truth and one converts him, let him know with he who converts the backslider from the error of his way will save a soul from death. But you see here, I must come back because this actually, I've preached on this so much, the, the effectual fervent prayer. I, I, I listen to people praying. I've learned how to pray effectively and with power and with authority. And that's what I want you to understand. That works. Prayer works. God answers prayer. And I'll tell you more next time I talk to you. God bless you. My God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful promise. When you are committed to and support the gospel, then stand on this promise that when you give to the extension of the kingdom, God will supply all your need. Jesus called it giving and receiving. This year God has given us wonderful opportunities to preach the gospel in Armenia, Georgia and Poland. And we continue to support Ukraine by distributing humanitarian and spiritual aid. For 12 months, our staff have helped the displaced, vulnerable and injured, supplying food and medicines. To make a donation, visit eurovision.org.uk forward slash donation. strength for now and for eternity. David will guide you through the Apostle Paul's letters to the Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. David has written this book to strengthen your faith at a time when everything around us is being shaken. Join David as he delves deep into the truths of the Bible. Order David's book, A Firm Foundation, by visiting our website, eurovision.org.uk forward slash shop. We would like to give you a free gift. David Hathaway's Prophetic Vision magazine is available free of charge. All you need to do is ask for it. This faith-building resource will show you the path to revival in your life and ministry. To receive this free magazine, visit eurovision.org.uk forward slash magazine.